Hello and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? Well, my sleep schedule's all kinds of messed up again, and I had plans to do things this week that I didn't do that were important and adulty, and I'm a little disappointed in myself, but at the same time I've been playing, well... No, there's not at the same time. I'm a little down, but I'll try to bring my tenor up. Or my ten- I don't know what I'm even talking about. My brain's not working. And that's why we do a podcast. So uh, why don't you get us started with our Patreon patron? Whatever. Sound off. <laughs> we're off to a good start here because we're professionals. All right. We're talking about those wonderful, wonderful people once again who give us money so that we can do things with this podcast. And they are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McCann, Chris Chipman, River Galley, and Krug. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. It only costs you 25 cents an episode, whereas it costs us roughly $60 an episode. And I think we are worth at least a quarter. Anyway, I'm going to take us right into the topic. We're talking Game of Thrones. And Hell yeah! This episode... This episode comes out when we plan it to. It should be just before the final season of the show is coming out. So topical. I'm excited. I am so excited and also deeply, deeply concerned. Okay, so let's get this out of the way first. Are we each book wankers, as my favorite Game of Thrones commentator, Man Reviews, likes to say? Uh, I... I'm not necessarily. I have read all the books, but that's a recent thing. I saw the show up through season, I think the end of season four. And then after that, I started reading the books. I only just finished them like three days ago because I've been reading them at a pretty slow pace. So book wanker. I like that. That's very fitting. No, I'm not either. I am one book away from finishing the series. And I honestly didn't read the books until they had long moved past the series because one, I didn't want to spoil anything for myself. And two, I did not want to become one of those people. Well, in the book, which I totally understand how you can feel that way. I feel very similar to uh, American Gods. But the Game of Thrones fans were so much more obnoxious, I feel. In the, oh, wait till you get here. Or, oh, in the book it did this. Like, oh, you were obnoxious fucks. So what's funny about that to me is... Adapting a book into television is not extremely common. It's it's becoming more common now that Game of Thrones has been, you know, a super mega success, but it's generally been adapted into movies. And so because of that, you know, you'd sit down, you'd see the thing, you'd have a discussion with someone afterwards who maybe was a fan of the book and be like, oh, well, this happened in the book, this happened in the book. But with Game of Thrones, you run into what you just talked about, which is the, ooh, wait until this thing happens. I know secret arcane knowledge that you don't, right? What's interesting to me about that is that as a anime and manga fan, I have I'm very well acquainted with that because it happens a lot in that, you know, space where it's like, "Ooh, I read the manga I, or I read the light novel." So to see that experience transcribed into essentially a uh, western high fantasy drama it is is really neat. <laughs> insufferable but neat yeah i was gonna say you can say neat all you want it was insufferable and so annoying 
Oh, and you know, when we all got to the Red Wedding, nobody could grieve in peace because there was that one book fan going, oh, I experienced that so long ago. Fuck off, damn it, man. You know, let us grieve in peace. That, that was a traumatic moment. Okay, and also, this goes without saying because, you know, Game of Thrones, but we're going to try to be spoiler free ish at least probably until like the you know the last season or the last you know, latest stuff we've you've heard. had a year and a half i don't think i'm not i'm not gonna worry about spoilers i'm well, sorry. that's what i'm year what's and I'm a half to. well what i'm getting to is that it's game of thrones we're having a discussion we're not gonna be able to talk about things without being completely spoiler free so if for some reason i've got friends who like know about everything that happened who have never seen it because it's just so in part of our culture at this point. So if you haven't seen it at this point and you don't like you plan to, you know, wh- why are you waiting so long? And anyway, just a warning, but it's just trying to be courteous, man. Never. This is game of Thrones. Courtesy has no place. Okay. Well then we'll get into, you know, the podcast show things in a second. <laughs> I, so I want to start us off, I think, with this discussion is very simple, which is what got you into it. Since neither one of us were book wankers, uh, you know, there are tons of people have been reading these books for like two decades at this point. And they, so they were like, no, they heard it's going to be made. They were super – they were aware of it. But since me and you weren't like that, what brought each of us in? I've got my own story, but since I'm the one bringing it up, I think I want to give you the floor. Okay. Mine is interesting and it's kind of a fun little time capsule. I first started watching Game of Thrones back when you could get it on Netflix, back when Netflix sent DVDs through the mail. Uh, the Dark Ages. Yeah. And I remember uh, Slagathor and our friend Captain Canada, who was living with us at the time, all sat down and watched it. And we're going, this show's really good, but it's also really confusing. Who are all these people? Why do I feel like there's history that happened before the history? And... We, we still kept watching because we're intrigued. And I remember, I didn't know any of the characters' names for the longest time. I thought uh, Theon and Rob were the same character. But I remember the biggest thing was, is I canceled my Netflix subscription, but they were supposed to send me the final disc in the season. So I would know how season one ended. But because Netflix was an asshole, they never sent me that final disc. So it was like, I think the end of season three, before I picked up Game of Thrones again, because I was just so bitter that I never got to finish that first season. And after binging through those first three seasons again, I was like, holy shit, this is my new thing. I'm going to stop watching. I stopped watching Doctor Who because, well, I only had so much geek space in my head at the time. And Game of Thrones took that on for me. It's funny because that means that you and I mean, you had a head start on me, but that you and I started getting more seriously into it roughly the same time. For me, I didn't even hear about Game of Thrones until it was already in its third season because I don't watch television, generally speaking, and I only find out things through word of mouth. And for some reason, it just never got around to me, uh, you know, Game of Thrones wise. And then finally, I was living with. Uh, Stevie, who's been a guest before, and a couple other, and Moonvog, and a couple other people, and we were all living in this this house down by the Sonic, which is a whole nother. Anyway, but Stevie had this uh, habit where he was more finger on the pulse than I'd say the rest of us when it came to pop culture, and so he starts talking about this show that he's you know getting into Game of Thrones, and I wasn't that interested. I think at the time I was mostly absorbed in Mass Effect like for the first time. So I was like super in it, but Stevie created something that I now use as a term for all television, which is, so he, he's like, okay, I just need to show you this one scene, just this one scene. All right. 
So I was like, okay, all right. And so, you know, I go in, I uh, sets it up on his computer and it's the scene of Khal Drogo dumping the molten gold on Vis- uh, Viserys' head. Awesome and, scene, by the way. Yeah. And it was awesome enough to make me think, yeah, I'm going to watch this. And then I proceeded to binge watch the first three seasons, which it like, I think there were one or two episodes out from the end at, at the time. So I watched all of them in a matter of like, you know, less than a week. So I was just, that was my thing. And it, it created this concept I call the golden crown scene and, you know, honor of that particular moment, which is anytime someone wants to get you into a television show or, or a movie and they figure out what's the one scene that I can try to show you to try to sell you on this. I call that the golden crown scene. Uh, the first time I used the term was actually with sons of anarchy and the, you know, torch burning off the guy's tattoo on his back. I was like, this is, the golden crown scene for this show was something I would show someone to get them to be like, wow, that's hardcore. And I, it doesn't have to be something, you know, brutal and violent, but that's a term I use. So. See, I remember when I first got back into it and I've been to that first season, I was like, all right, I'm finally going to see where this is going, man. I'm looking forward to call Drogo, you know, taking over the seven kingdoms. And I got to the end of the first season going, God damn it. What the hell? Oh no, what? Sean Bean died again. And just this whole total looking back on now was just this total surprise. Like I expected entirely different things from the show. I think we all did. And I think that's probably why it took off so well. Is it really, I hate to use this phrase, subverted our expectations of what we were expecting? Yeah. I mean, certainly. Uh, I mean, that was the entire, not the entire, but that's one of the big giant appeals was like, hey, look at this character who's very obviously the main character. And he's basically Aragorn. And they even got the guy who played, you know, Boromir to play him. And we're going to kill him halfway through the first season. So Yeah, no, that was my first exposure to uh, Jason Momoa. Uh, for the longest time, Slagatory referred to him simply as sexy ponytail guy. Yeah, because he was on, what, Stargate or something like that? Is that uh, he was Atlanta? Stargate and then a Baywatch reboot, neither of which I watched. It's funny. I refer to Momoa. I've, I'm not, I didn't create this. But I like to refer to Moa as he's not a very talented actor necessarily, but he's so charismatic and fun on screen that it doesn't matter. Just like seeing him, you know, he makes an awesome Carl Carl Drogo. I mean, that guy just oozes. Don't fuck with me. And I will, you know, lead a great horse army that will destroy the world if only I hadn't been poisoned. It's funny considering Cal Drogo is so hardcore and serious and now he's Aquaman and this version of Aquaman that's super like chill and he's like a beach bro and I love it. So Yeah. Now have you ever seen his audition tape for the for, you know his role as Cal Drogo? No, I haven't. Uh it's him doing a haka and that was it. And they said, Okay, you know what? Yeah, you work. You're you're scary and intimidating. That that he is. So first things then Right, we got to get the the generic kind of Game of Thrones conversations out of the way, which is, uh, I guess, the first one would be what moment is the was the biggest like shock for you? Because most people, I think, are going to say like the Red Wedding, but unfortunately for me, I had since I was right about the time when it just came out, it was all over the feeds, and even if I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, I still knew generally what was going to happen. So while it did still shock me, the level of brutality, it wasn't like as big a thing as some other, you know events were see that's the funny thing uh the red wedding did shock me and it was the time everyone was talking about it but i had completely forgotten what it was or that it was a thing and i'm sitting there watching it 
And then it happens, and I'm like, oh my god, this is what everyone on the internet was freaking out about. No, not Rob. No, not, you know, Greyland. No, it was just, I remember, for a long time, I had goosebumps talking about it. And I remember uh, one of our favorite critics, Jeremy John, said, this is the moment that Game of Thrones asks you, would you like to continue? It's okay, you can get off now. Funny considering I I got a couple friends who uh, were super into Game of Thrones, like way more than me, including Stevie, actually, who have now fallen out with it for reasons that we'll get into in a bit. But it was well after, you know, that event. So <laughs> that was the one that just kind of, you know, slammed the fist home going, oh, you thought that this was going to end well. You thought that he was going to win. You forgot what show you were watching. And yeah, no, that was a definite wake up call. I don't think I ever let my guard down after that with the show, which interestingly enough, I mean, the previous seasons before we'd had a couple big moments, but never like that big shocker. I don't think like previously, I mean, we had when Renly died, that was more just, he got killed by a shadow man. What the hell? There's shadow men in this game, in this show now. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Oh, I think for me, the, the big, the big shock that like made me feel like this was not going the way I thought was basically everything to do with uh, Ramsey Bolton and Theon. Uh, like the way that went down uh, was, was especially because there's a moment where Theon says a line where he's like, you know, my father you know, died in King's Landing or something like that. And it's like, oh, well, this is the character arc where Theon comes around from being the fuck boy he's been to being like a good person. Immediately followed by, no, we're going to torture you until your mind breaks entirely. It's like, that's, that was a subversion of like fantasy plot expectations. So that got me to not get back on Theon's side, but to almost go, okay, I now feel you have suffered enough for your sins. You can begin to repent. And also kind of going, this Ramsey's guy, Ramsey guy might be more annoying than Joffrey, though Joffrey is oh. He's worse than the book, which I'm probably going to mention the book a couple times. I mean, the actor did a great job. He's more punchable in the show, but he's more annoying in the book, I think. Well, the thing is, book's version of Joffrey is supposed to be because he's a subversion of the Prince Charming trope. Like he's even described as, you know, looking, you know, very like attractive with his golden curls. Like he's supposed to have, you know, kind of this flowy kind of hair, like, you know, a Lannister proper. And he speaks normally very, what, what's the word? Proper. Like his. Yeah, he's, he's, he's trained. He's got the outward appearance. I would. He's very snivelly, though. Like once the facade comes down, that's how I would describe him in the book. Well, that's the point is in the book, whenever he snaps, it is more like a abrupt change because he's going from seemingly well-trained prince charming to sadistic monster whereas the show chose to to instead have a portrayal where it's like you can always see you can see when he's pretending to be princely you can even feel it then like it's always there under the surface it's a different type of portrayal i'd say neither one is better than the other it's just a different style of how to go about i i think i prefer the show's version because it's so eminently more like tense like i feel more tense with him than i do in with his scenes in the book probably because of that constantly boiling under the surface sadism but that's just my experience so you want to go ahead and rip this bandage off real quick which one there's a few our thoughts on the book versus the show Ulrich and I both like the show more. And as someone who's now read all the books, I, I feel, I feel strong in that. So here's the thing. The book 
is fun. I, I, I enjoy the books. Certainly. I spent a long time reading them. I, there are several things that are so much better in the book. Like here, I will put this forward. The entire plot line with Rob uh, Stark is done eminently better in the book. Everything about Dorn so much better in the book. Uh, the the House of Black and White. I'm hoping so it gets better. better. I'm hoping Dorn gets better in the last book, because in this one, I was like, oh no, I'm back in Dorn. Dorn is so boring. I'm not saying it's good in the show. On, it's like, listen, this is interesting, but I really want to get back to everything else that's going on. And you've set up. There's a motherfucking army of the dead slowly marching towards the wall. No, the main reason I like the show over the book is the book is great. The books are awesome. I'm really hoping we get a uh, finale to it. But the show is better at streamlining because there are so many parts of the books that just kind of go on and on and on. You're like, listen, this is great. This is fascinating. But can we cut to the chase already? Oh, yeah. There's a thing that I'm sure there are some people out there who are going to agree that this is a thing that happens, but not agree that it's a bad thing. That's fine. You're allowed to have that. But George R. R. Martin's style of world building is in some places great. Basically everything to do with how he world builds the wall and, and the, the wilds, that's all amazing. But he has this horrible tendency of having literally like two to three solid paragraphs worth of space just listing names, names of people, names of clans, names of ships. And it become and none of them fucking matter to anything and nope. it just becomes a my eyes just glaze over i'm like where's the end of this fucking list and he does it enough times that it became like a i'm tired of seeing this <laughs> also long descriptions of what people are wearing in their hairstyles which is all great but expediency of plot sometimes and that's again where the show is like listen we can talk about these 30 some bannermen of this random house that only applies in this one scene or we can cut to this awesome battle yeah, so that that writing style just oh, also there's a thing I realized too with R. Martin's style. He is a cruel writer. Like I don't know how to phrase this better, but I get that he's trying to create and successfully creating a world that is you know mean and ugly and gross and full of terrible people. But there's a certain level that he writes to where it just becomes super unpleasant to read. Like basically, he has this one. I remember. First thinking this, I think in the the first book, there's a section that just goes into detail about Gregor Gregor Clegane raping this tavern owner's daughter in front of him on the table. And it was like, this is extremely unpleasant to read. I get that it's supposed to make Clegane a monster, but you could have done that without going into this kind of horrific detail. It just makes me uncomfortable. You know, maybe I'm a wuss. I don't care, but I think uh, just. The murmurers were good enough to go, these are the people he associates with. We cool? Okay, cool. Which again, I think show kind of uses shorthand to get to that, even though it took him three attempts to get the mountain right. Yes. But again, the 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 show makes us really feel how much of a force of destruction and evil the mountain is without showing him raping someone, you know? Yeah, he's just that big I mean the hound hates him, and you're like, the hound's pretty fucked up. So if he, you know, hates this guy, plus a lot is done with the whole how the hound's face got burned to tell you everything you need to know about the mountain. By the way, the hound fits into another category of characters I think are done better in the show. Because when I first started reading the book, 
the hound is a lot more of a for lack of a better term sociopath not that he isn't in the show but one of the things that makes the hound interesting in the show is that you can tell he's a hard person in a hard world but that there is something redeemable there it's why we can kind of get behind his whole journey with Arya. in the book he's a lot more of a straight up asshole and that doesn't seem he's to be very, very one-dimensional yes same thing for braun braun has no dimension in the book uh i like Tyrion a lot more in the show too I mean part of that's just because Peter Dinklage is amazing but while while Tyrion's great in the book he has this tendency to be too well one note he's kind of snarky like he can be interesting but a lot of times he just falls back on the same kind of emotional beats whereas I feel like Dinklage gives the character a lot more dimension can we talk about casting real quick and how I mean perfect a lot of these people are in the show (laughs) I mean it's like they scooped up Every English person with a shred of gravitas and acting ability and said, hey, you want to appear for like five seconds as a blacksmith in the back of this scene? And they're like, yeah, cool. My favorite example being Tyrion or Tywin fucking Lannister. Obviously. A character I should hate, but I love just because of how he's portrayed in the show. Tywin is a great example. I will say Tywin is perfect adaptation of his book form because I've got the same feeling of who how he is in the book and then in the show i love him both but that's definitely a great example yeah where you should hate this character but he's so like you get him he's very fun it'd be easier to list off characters who are like miscast and there really are not that many like very few i know a lot of people get mad about uh yara Greyjoy. well it says asha right uh which they call her in the it, that one the feels like a weird thing. nitpick to me she's a lot differently described in the book i I get that but but she comes off her performance in the show i feel like gets across the same kind of character that i feel like from the book so that doesn't bother me at all like looks differences i can usually kind of ignore as long as they get the the feeling of the character right you know let's talk about probably one of the best changes and i think it's a lot to do with the actor and that's uh your favorite character well, my favorite character is the Onion Knight, uh, Davos Seaworth. And, and he is so much better in the show than he was in the book. I would say he's not bad in the book. He's I, I like he's, him in the book a lot. I like him in the yeah, book too, but you don't get the same attachment for him, I don't think. At least well, he, I didn't. Here's what I feel like is the big difference. Because the humanity of the man is there in the book. The How good of a person. Basically, he's the only good person in this story which is kind of what i love about him that's all there in the book what the show and the actor brings to it is a level of what's the word not snark but he's got a a wry he's wry he's got a wry wit to him that gives him more character makes him feel like a person yeah because i like davos in the book but i think a large part of my like for him comes from the fact i like him so much in the show and i'm transposing a lot of those feelings i have for him because in the book he's kind of you know he's a noble reliable guy uh he's not really comfortable in his position but he's a good decent guy whereas in the show he's all that plus you kind of get the feeling this is a guy who has really struggled but he hasn't let it make hasn't made him bitter or resentful well it doesn't help that in the book every single davos chapter is basically 90 percent of it is him hand wringing over melisandre and stannis and that's yeah. most of what he talks about in the book, which that, that the, does not it, help. Yeah. He gets to branch out more in the, 
in the show, essentially. So let's kind of start talking about the later seasons when they started moving away from the book. And of course, what is now becoming the popular thing, the show stopped being good once they moved away from the book. I disagree. And me and and Ulrich and I have talked about this and we have the similar kind of agreement, which is that it's not that it stopped being good. It's that it became a different kind of show entirely. And I don't think people were prepared for that maybe not prepared but maybe they didn't like that so like here's the thing we've agreed that the first four seasons essentially are a political drama set in a you know high fantasy world but then once it moved past the book it had to start kind of picking up pace and so it became not any political drama anymore but a just high fantasy story it basically changed from being the Tudors to becoming lord of the rings which is fine it's just that that means that it had a drastic change in how things are paced because it's focusing more on big scale events than small machinations, you know? Yeah, I 100% agree. And I also kind of think there is a little bit of book wankers going, well, it's going to be better in the book because, and I don't know if it will be. I think we're going to have a lot of the same decisions, but they want, they don't like those decisions. So they tell themselves it'll be different in the book. I mean, and- it depends entirely on what you're, or what specific thing you're talking about. Cause like I said, there are entire, there's, well, there's a huge plot line. There's a huge plot line that they have had to take away from the, the book and the show that I'm super curious how they're going to work around. Ulrich's favorite character, or at least his most identified with character has been Robert Baratheon since early on. Whereas I've basically identified with Davos Seaworth the entire time. So because Robert was probably one of the best characters there was. But also, Ulrich envisions himself as basically that kind of "I'm the king, I'm you know, big and boisterous and more and bigger than larger than life." He's a larger than life character, whereas I see myself in Davos, who's basically this really smart kind of uh, tricky but defined by duty and loyalty kind of character. So, I also like Robert's politics. So I'm gonna hit you with my hammer. Yeah, c- correct. Correct. Anyway, so the point is that once you know season five of the show comes around, it starts pulling away because there isn't book material left. And now it is well known at this point that George R. R. Martin has told the showrunners how he planned to end the story. Now, how much they're going and that's up for debate, but they know what his plan is because he wanted to give them the ability to to go where they need to go. Still, though. Because it's transitioned to basically a high fantasy story as opposed to a political drama, generally speaking, I like a lot of the decisions. I like how fast things are happening in the last couple seasons. There's a few problems. Like, I have a problem with how fast information seems to move now. Like I'm not bothered by that one. I well, That's a really annoying nitpick I can't stand that people got super pissed about the last couple seasons. Why is everyone teleporting? How is this passing so quickly? Listen. Do you want us to show you a steady shot of the sun going up and down and up and down for six months? Or would you just be happy going, time passed, get over it? Well, see, while I understand your point, the problem is that you can do that a handful of times. But once you do it enough times, it really pulls me out of the experience. It it breaks my immersion with the story because it's like, okay, this is happening over and over again. I don't I no longer feel like I'm watching a story. I feel like I'm watching writers try to scramble for a way to put together disparate pieces and it, it just it pulls me out of the story. It didn't bug me. What did does bug me? And this is going out to HBO. This show is making you all the money in the world. 
Why are you putting restraints on how many episodes they can do and how much money they can spend? You are going to make it back. Just let it ride. Sorry, that's I been mean, bugging me for a while. I mean, I don't know the specifics, but I know that it costs like four and a half million dollars on average to produce and make an episode of Game of Thrones. And I don't know how much they actually get back considering it's the most pirated show in history. On merchandise time, alone, though, you can't pirate merchandise. I mean, I'm looking at a Baratheon banner right now and wishing that I had that uh, Iron Throne USB charger. And all the Funkos. I mean, that's the show's biggest advantage. They have a million and one characters, and they're all getting a Funko. There's also, I want to also say that this show, the last few seasons, I've heard more criticisms aimed at some of the the actors when I feel like are not appropriate. Okay, example, Kit Harrington. I've heard some criticism aimed at him mostly because he's been in a few other movies now, and generally he's not great. But here, here's the thing about Kit Harrington: the guy was born to play Jon Snow. Is he a good actor? Doesn't really seem like it, but he's perfect for that role, you know? Yeah, I kind of am waiting to see where uh, Amelia Clark pans out because she does a great Daenerys. She's hilariously interesting as a person, but I haven't seen her in anything. I'm like, yep, you're going to do fine after Game of Thrones. Here's an interesting thing about that. I remember before I started reading the book, I heard uh, I was talking to a, a book wanker. And again, we keep using this term. If you haven't watched Aussie Man Reviews Game of Thrones, go watch his channel because it's freaking hilarious. But anyway, I heard this guy talking about how he didn't like Amelia Clark's portrayal because in the book, Daenerys comes off as this like goddess, essentially, this like bigger, larger than life kind of character that is it makes sense while people worship her. Now that I've read all the books, I can say that I don't see that. Yeah. I want to read that book because the, the new, she starts out as a frightened child and then kind of evolves from there. Yeah. But even her evolution by the end of a dance with dragon, she still is a frightened child. She's a frightened child with, she like literally the last chapter of the book. She even talks about how she's still a little girl. Like there's a sentence that really stuck out to me where she's like, I am still a little girl. And then, and that's what it feels like to me that this is, a very strong character, but she's a strong character largely because she is this this weak character in a hard, big situation. I feel like the show's instead Amelia Clark's portrayal is actually a lot bigger and bolder because over the last one hundred percent, they've turned her into a queen. I do not feel up to the last book that Daenerys in the book is a queen. They keep telling me that, but I don't get the feeling of it like I do with Amelia Clark's portrayal, where she exudes power and influence. Oh, 100%. And when you just kind of go back to the first season where she started out as the meek kind of beaten down to where we are now when she's roasting people alive with this whole, do not fuck with me. I am tired of people fucking with me. Speaking yeah. of character turnarounds, uh, let's talk about Jamie. That's been well, interesting. So Jamie is interesting for a lot of reasons. I remember being literally hanging out with like four of my friends when we watched the scene of uh, the, the, the big scene of him in the bath with Brienne. And it's literally the moment where most people stop hating Jamie and are like, Oh no, like I understand this guy now. Now instead rape Cersei in front of the corpse of his son. That was scene. weird. Like, yeah, there's a lot of decisions that people get upset about. I'm like, eh, whatever that one. I still kind of go, I, I don't, I have questions. I don't understand why that decision was made. And that scene, which it does exist in the book, kind of is a lot it's consensual more... in the book. And it, it's still creepy because it's a funeral. Yeah, yeah. But also at that point, we've just gone through like a whole chapter of, well, a few chapters. Anyway, not the point. 
point is that Jamie is an interesting, very complicated character who is arguably supposed to be this you kind of transition from hating him to loving him, hating him to loving him. And it, I like how in the show it's it's okay, it's obvious really to anyone at this point, right, that Jamie's gonna be the one who actually kills Cersei. That's the prophecy. I hope so. Like I feel because there's an interesting Easter egg in this final season, which if you haven't heard about it, I'll tell you about it now. And that's when Cersei and Jamie are standing in the big map of Westeros. Cersei is standing on the neck and Jamie is standing on the fingers. That to me feels like a clear broadcast of where this is going to end. Yeah. I mean, literally the, the prophecy describes that how she'll be killed. She's going to be choked to death. And she always thought it was Tyrion and it's probably going to be Jamie. Like that's obvious at this point. Right. So then this matter of, well, this is what I call, I think I've mentioned it a few times the, uh, the Perry Mason idea where it's like just because i've predicted how something happens doesn't mean i don't want to see how it happens so similar thing is like how do we get jamie there in the book okay here, here actually here's one thing a while back i had this argument with someone about Tyrion in general and how they much preferred how Tyrion and jamie leave each other in the book and i so disagree with it because in the book yeah. for anyone know uh jamie tells Tyrion about how his past wife was actually his wife and that that was real and that the whole like actually she was a prostitute thing was a, a lie made up by Tywin in order to try to crush uh, Tyrion. so when he gives up this information Tyrion responds by lying and saying he did kill joffrey and that also cersei's been fucking like all these various people which isn't actually really a lie well, kind of uh but, but it's not oh, there's one person he says that he she's fucking that she's not but everyone else i think she was at that point yeah exactly but the point is that that moment colors every single jamie chapter afterwards and it actually kind of frustrates me because basically every jamie chapter after that moment is him constantly i think he literally didn't go a single chapter without bringing up um, that memory of Tyrion saying, oh, she's fucking this guy and this guy and this guy. And it's it's kind of ruined Jamie in the book. Not like as a character necessarily, but ruined him personality-wise. This is like all he thinks about, but he doesn't actually, he can't spend any time with Cersei because now he sees her as this kind of moron who keeps making terrible decisions and also can't trust her. So he's literally left, like, the book doesn't know where he is. He, he left. <laughs> I, I don't like it because it, kind of ruins his motivation because in the show he's kind of turning against cersei because when he comes back she fucking blew up the sept killed all those people he's like oh well you know i don't know if i can stand by that one and in the book it's like oh she's sleeping around on me i don't know if i can stand by that one it is a total different motivation and it feels like it cheapens the character a bit same thing for the the Tyrion concept like the fact that in the show Tyrion and jamie leave with the like okay, we have different lives and different priorities, but we are still brothers and we love each other is, yeah, it's a little sappy. Fine. I don't care. I thought it they, worked really well. True to their character. I mean, they're still kind of divided because Jamie's a bit mad that like, dude, you killed our dad. To Granted, I don't like what they did with Shay, both in book and, you know, TV. That feels really weird to me still. I feel like in, so here's the thing about that. It's, it's complicated because in the show, I feel like it's less they, they they spend more time making it think seem like she could actually be in love with him only to then pull that rug out like from under you. So I feel like the 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 turn is more effective in the show because in the book, they never really make it 
um, that it's always obvious that she is a worker, that she's doing a job. So when she turns and it, it's not really a surprise and it's not really about her when Tyrion kills her, it's more about the situation going and she's just a focal point for his anger. Whereas in the show, it's a lot more of a personal, you made me you know, feel like a person and then you betrayed me and I in the worst possible way and you will pay for it. I both like it and don't because as you said, it's a great dramatic moment and it really does uh, hammer home just the pain and sympathy you have for Tyrion in that moment. But on the other hand, they spent so much time building her up and making us like her. It's like, come on, stop making me hate everybody. I get everyone's terrible. I accept that. I don't need to be reminded again and again and again. I mean, come on, you just killed the Viper, which was an awesome fight, I know, but come on, By the I'm way, still reeling with that one. Oberyn Martell is, for me, a, a perfect example of is doing such an awesome job that he gets across even more so how much of a badass Oberyn is. Because like those scenes with him in the brothel, oh, yeah. for instance, they aren't in the book. That's just not a thing in the book. But in the show, they add so much more depth to who Oberyn is. Again, I will argue this is the economy of the show. They are expediting what would technically be large bits of exposition in smaller bits to get you to the same place the book got you in a shorter amount of time. And it really kind of makes you go, hey, you only got a season to get to know this character, but you're going to like him and want him to live. Yeah, I just, I just, I just the second you brought it up, I realized, yeah, because in the book, Oberyn's described as this, like, kind of first of all his most defining trait is this massive widow's peak like go look up art of what oberon is described as in the book and you realize yeah he looks nothing like that actor but it doesn't matter because that actor kills it yeah man i wish i'm wish that that hadn't been spoiled for me because the game of thrones facebook page spoiled that for me the day after the episode aired so i kind of knew it was coming but i still hope maybe i'm wrong maybe it'll be something different so an example, I want to say, uh, I'm jumping ship a little bit here, but an example of something that is very television-y and not very booky, but it was so good, is everything to do with the Battle of the Bastards. That entire... Holy shitballs. ...is one of my favorite episodes of television I've ever seen, and it's partially that way because it is an episode of television. It takes advantage of its medium in such a powerful way that I feel like if they were still, you know, chained to the idea of being a political drama, it just wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been done that way. So. So let me ask you this, because Slagathar and I both talked about it since we watched, first time we watched it and rewatched it, but do you just get a sense of almost claustrophobia as John is being, you know, buried under the bodies and struggling to survive? Of course, that is definitely the intent of how that scene is directed. So well, I agree, but it's just it's so visceral. No matter how many times I watch it, I still get this holy shit, this is ridiculous. I can't breathe. And I mean, in the back of my mind, they're not going to kill him. He's already died once. He's not going to die again. But this is also Game of Thrones, and this is pretty intense. And I mean, the battle for Winterfell has a lot to live up to. They've been hyping that one for a while. But I think in levels of just my personal investment, I don't think anything's going to top the Battle of the Bastards. Yeah. Now, here's we've been talking about you know the show and the book and how we like the show more in general. There's a criticism I want to bring up that I feel is very interesting, and I understand where it's coming from, which is that now that the show has moved past the book, several characters have too thick of plot armor, essentially. And that since one of the main reasons they got in the show was the, like, anyone can die mentality this kind of pulls them out of it 
there's a few angles I want to approach this criticism. One, for me personally, and I'm not going to say that this is true for anyone else, but for me personally, I reached a point with Game of Thrones where the whole anyone can die thing actually pulled me out of it. I was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Like I said, it, it felt like George is a cruel writer. So I just reached a point where it's like, oh, well, this person's going to die, this person's going to get raped, this person's getting skinned, whatever. I stopped caring because it was just so much uh, vicious and cruelness that I became desensitized to the whole thing. So it didn't really matter to me anymore if someone has you know plot armor. Secondly, they've reached this point where they're approaching the end of the story, right? And you've got to get your main players in a row, which is why they killed off a bunch of you know side characters in the last couple seasons. But if they actually killed John at the point where it seemed like they were going to, and he stayed dead, that would have been a shit decision because it would have basically gotten rid of so much of this buildup that's important to him that it would have been a shock value, sure, but it would have been a kind of decision that's like like a you know a horror movie jump scare. It doesn't matter well, at the end if it comes off cheap. Narratively, what's the reward to that? And that's kind of why I think Game of Thrones works, is each of the deaths narratively serves a purpose. Yes, anyone can die, but what does their death mean for the greater show? Or the greater story? Yeah. So, example, the character with the most plot armor right now, obviously, is like Daenerys, maybe even Tyrion, because Peter Dinklage has top billing. What would it serve to kill either of them right now? It feels like especially Daenerys, but if you kill Tyrion right now, it would just feel like they were doing... To me, it would feel like they were doing it just to try to be like, oh, look, we killed Tyrion. It wouldn't... It would actually be an anti... It would pull me out of it, definitely. Tyrion, as one of the few characters I say is 100% safe going to the end. Daenerys and Jon, I'm both putting it 50-50 because I don't think they're both going to make it out. Both... I could buy one of them going. One of but them will be. I don't think both are going to make it. I think it's a 50 50 odd for both of them. Yeah, but even so, we can, I like them both as characters. We can acknowledge that it, even if one of them dies, it'll probably be like the last episode or second to last episode of the whole series. It'd be like, this is when oh, yeah. we're ending the story. So now we can. So that would make you know sense at that point, but it's a the different kind of theory I've heard is that she's going to die in childbirth like her mother did, and some it'll spin a plot out from there. Yeah, sure. I that. I've also heard that John's going to die because when they kill the Night King, all the magic is going to leave the world, and that means everyone that's been resurrected is going to go as well. I don't buy that one because uh, it could go either. Well, here's the thing. The book and the show have gone to great lengths to say that the reason magic's coming back into the world is the dragons. So as long as the dragons are alive, magic will continue to actually strengthen. If they kill both the dragons, which you can do, maybe. But there's also kind of the question, like, the dragons are oddly timed with the rising of the White Walkers and the Whites. And why did... Oh, I know we bitched about it. But, you know, the same people that bitch about, you know, teleportation and texting in this universe never seem to complain about the fact that it took them for fucking ever to get to the wall. They started marching in season one. I mean, I would argue that in with my perspective, the idea is they were actually following winter and like, because there's idea, does winter come with the night King or does the night King come with winter? And I think it's both of them kind of. And so it's like, they were kind of limited by, you know, the passage of the seasons, but now they're no longer. Essentially winter is here. Also the seasons makes no sense from a, astrological point of view actually uh, oh, wait, so, 
astronomers okay. have realized that it can work in a binary star system. But we only ever see one sun. Yes, but that could just be clever. Like, you know, they never call it out really in, That's true. in the books. So it could just be there are two suns. We just never see both of them in the sky at the same time. But in a binary star system, you could easily have unpredictable seasons like those described in the Game of Thrones story. All right, that makes sense. So since we're getting near the end, who do you think, like, because I'm sure you've done this because everyone has, who do you think for sure is going to die? Mm-hmm. Well, let's say Speak. like 75 or say 65% or better odds of dying. Because I got a couple that's like, yeah, Cersei is 100%. Jamie's 100% for me. Grey Worm, Hound. I'd say 75. The Hound and the Mountain, both, I'm putting at 75. I here's, think here's, actually, here's the one that Maybe. I'm most interested in. Um, this is a theory that's been on the internet for a while now. And if it turns out to be true, I will be really happy, even though it's been predicted. Like, I don't care that we fix, but the idea that the prince that was promised Azor Zai is actually Ser Jorah, that he fit. Mm. I love it. Cause he basically, he fits the prophecy perfectly as perfectly as, uh, John and Daenerys do, but it also is the, I mean, well, George R. R. Martin has come out and said many times he thinks prophecies are bullshit. And the idea that in order to forge his special sword, he has to dip it in water, then a lion, and then the love of his life means literally stab Tyrion and Daenerys in order to create the sword required to kill the Night King. And considering all the journey that Jorah has gone through and the idea that his emotional arc would end with in order to save the world and save her children, I have to kill the woman I love is such a, it works so well for me. So I follow it, but at the same time, if that's not the end of the book, that's fine. I more want Jorah to go out with a heroic last stand to save Daenerys because that's always been his role is to serve Daenerys. And I kind of want to see it end with him dying in her service as part of her Kingsguard. And that being the whole end of his story arc. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just saying that if they did the, uh, uh Jorah turns out to be Azor's eye, I would love that, but I'm also perfectly fine if they don't, it was just one of those things. I, even like, I don't want the Prince who was promised at this point. Like, I just kind of want that to be, yeah, them crazy fire worshippers made all that shit up. I don't know what they're talking about. Well, I also like the idea that, because prophecies are so weird, right? I also like the idea that the sword is a person. I've heard this theory, too, that while Daenerys is Azor's eye, the sword isn't actually a sword. Like, Jon Snow is the sword. And that that's how that prophecy could be, like, interpreted. Which I, I like playing around with that kind of concept. And... Game of Thrones has basically come out and said that various of the gods actually do exist through little actions. So, like, the, the Red God is a thing. Well, we've seen so. him doing all sorts of crazy shit. That Shadow Baby still haunts my dreams. Yeah, and resurrecting someone over and over again. So, like, Red God definitely exists. So Azor's Eye almost certainly does also exist. But the nature of the prophecy, I think, is going to be played around with quite a bit. So, so let's talk characters we like that we think are going to die. Um, I think Tormund's going to go, even though Tormund is awesome. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I think Davos is probably going to die. Even I actually don't. Davos I think, awesome. I think how they've constructed him, he's the kind of character that I feel like it makes, and this isn't just because he's my favorite character. I'm not saying it like I I'm perfectly fine. I'm saying that it feels like they've, built him in such a way that when the end comes, 
he's going to be like, if not the hand, then on the small council as like, that's going to be his, he's this person who came from nothing. He's not a noble at all, but he's basically been raised through all these various uh, actions, but he's still not, you know, the huge player. He's a side, a, a small, uh, like a supporting kind of character. So I feel like killing him, yeah, you could make that work, sure, but I feel like the way that the story is constructed, he's actually going to come out alive. No, I think he has the I'm a decent person and I must die for that uh, syndrome that Game of Thrones really loves to punish. Because when you look at it, there are only like maybe one or two good characters left, and it's him and Brienne. And I think Brienne actually is going to come out on top. See, it's funny. I feel like the opposite. I feel like Brienne dying in uh, an act of chivalry will be like the natural end of her character arc. So, but it's fine. And then I guess one last question. If you could bring any character that has died previously back, doesn't have to be for plot reasons, just you miss them and you want them back, who would you bring back? I mean, probably Oberyn. Like, just Oberyn was so fun. His death was so needless He because of his own stupid mistakes because uh, you know bringing back like edard would be problematic for a lot of reasons um don't don't need to bring back rob oh i guess i could say catlin because she is i can never pronounce her name i'm sorry but you know mrs stark because she kind of is for you know spoiler for the book she kind of is brought back in the book and they're doing some weird shit with her so that's to see let me put it this way to see that character uh, lady stoneheart in the show that could be my choice uh, i don't think i need lady stoneheart no i'll just go completely for because it made me laugh the first time i saw it was uh call drogo and i think it was how it should have ended did the joke where drogo comes back and daenerys goes my love how did you come back oh i just skull punched death in the throat until he let me go and that just makes me smile and i kind of want to see i want to hear jason momoa say that line well, you're a simple man with simple pleasures, so... <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. That would just make me laugh to hear Jason Momoa say, I just throat-punched death until he let me go. Plus, come uh, on, he was so awesome, and he deserves a better death than he got. Well, again, that's kind of the point. But anyway, we are reaching the hour mark, so as we talk about what characters we kind of think are going to die, but so as a real quick way to finish this up what are predictions just general predictions for the final season i mean obviously we've got you know the night king coming there's gonna be a big war predict that jamie will kill cersei predict that you know john and daenerys one of them is gonna die that's a prediction you made but who do you think is actually gonna kill the night king for instance i think it's going to come down to john because they have there's been so many visual cues teeing them up to face off against each other and it may play out different in the book but I think this show is ultimately going to go with the rule of cool and give us that big epic showdown between the two. Just like I think we are going to see the Clegane Bowl, despite everyone saying, no, they're just teasing us with it. They're never going to do it. All right. So then real quick, what do you think the the spring has come? What is the ruling governance of Westeros look like? Oh, that's a tough one. I think John will go on to be king, though... For reasons both personal and more complex, I want to see Gendry on the throne. I think Sansa will be Warden of the North with Brienne at her side. I think Tyrion is going to be Hand of the King. And Podrick might end up taking uh, Castle Rock. Podrick? Really? He's proven loyal and decent 
and he has stood by Tyrion and Brienne through everything. Maybe not Castle Rock, but he deserves a reward, and there are so few Lannisters left. Here's, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I think Tyrion will take the rock because it's literally been his dream forever. And if he comes out alive, that's going to be... Plus, it's basically a big spit on Tywin's grave that Tyrion finally gets the rock to himself. I think that's true. Gendry is more like... Yeah, I think it's more likely that Gendry will be the hand, not because he's necessarily suited to it, but because it'll be a reversal of Robert Baratheon as king at our Stark as hand. I'd like to see Gendry and Arya together because it kind of mirrors the love that never was for Robert and uh, what's her name? Lyanna. But I think Arya only has one of two fates. Either she's going to die or after all of this, she is going to finally become no one and become a faceless man because she's finally accomplished everything and given up everything. It seems like the only way that can really end. Well, because I'm thinking maybe like if we have John as king and under my like concept, right, we have probably Davos actually as hand because he's already serving as John's hand. We have like Podrick as master of... Or not Podrick. I keep I keep saying Podrick when I mean Gendry. Have like Gendry be the new head of the King's Guard. Have probably like you said, Sansa Ward of the North. I totally agree with that. But Arya would probably be like a new Master of Whispers, for instance. That could work. But I just kind of feel like she is so emotionally broken, kind of like uh, Bran. There's no real coming back. Hmm. The other thing is, I want to get your opinion on this. I don't think we're going to see it. Because it would cost way too much. What? But I love the idea of if at the Battle of Winterfell we finally see the giant motherfucking spiders that have been hinted at since, you know, book one. You know, giant giant spider, frost spider, cavalry. And then we get Nymeria leading a huge pack of dire wolves out to defend Winterfell. Well, hopefully HBO goes all out in the final season because as you said game of thrones makes them buku money and if it's last season like put all your effort into it so i, I can just only like hope, right? the idea of a massive dire wolf cavalry charge and a huge sweeping shot i can see it in my head and it looks so awesome but i don't think they'll do it anyway really we could go on about game of thrones uh show and book stuff forever and but we need to cut ourselves off at this point we're both excited the show should be coming out here in a sometime soon after this is released or sometime recently before this is released depending on how editing goes so any closing thoughts about game of thrones uh i love this show i'm intrigued by the potential for the spinoff uh, i'm really hoping they stick the landing i really hope this doesn't end with us all going come on what the hell was that my closing thoughts are that Game of Thrones is amazing. It's great to see it take over, you know, the popular culture in such a way. I want to put in that I didn't mention Ygritte at all, but I have to because she's my personal favorite lady in Game of Thrones. And the fact that her and John, in reality, those two actors are married is like amazing to me. But that's just a personal like fan thing. Anyway, I think that if you are, you know, you've read the book. You watch the show and you're jonesing for something Game of Thrones-ish. Berserk, the manga slash anime, is very Game of Thrones-ish. And as is Vinland Saga, which is um, an, a manga that's getting an anime adaptation about Vikings. So That I mean, looks interesting. Yeah, so like two things to check out if you're jonesing for something Game of Thrones-ish that isn't Game of Thrones. Uh, if you're jonesing for something that is Game of Thrones-ish, go watch uh, the Honest Trailers for 
Game of Thrones, both part one and part two. Part two kills me every single time. In fact, I'm going to watch it after this because that just got me laughing again. Also, you can go back and watch Man reviews. He reviews like every episode of Game of Thrones and he interviewed several of the actors and the actor who plays Bran says that whenever he has to do like a interview about a specific episode, he'll watch Man reviews his video to brush himself up on what happened, which I thought was awesome to hear. So interesting. Anyway, let's move on to our suggestions of the week. Neither one of which I'm looking at the list here is terribly in line with what our topic is. So Ulrich, you go ahead. All right. As you all know, I'm a parent and that means I don't have a lot of time to play games that often. So I'm going to suggest a really old game. Well, not really old. I guess it's a couple years old now, but if you own a PlayStation 4, you should have this game and that is Horizon Zero Dawn. Holy shit balls. I loved this game. Brave, but with mechanical dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Do you like to hunt giant robot monsters and craft stuff alongside an interesting story? Uh, here's the setup. You play as Aloy, a young girl that was banished from her tribe for reasons she doesn't know, in a post-apocalyptic world full of giant mechanical robots and beasts and all sorts of terrifying things. And just when she's about to, you know, get accepted into the tribe... Tragedy strikes, and she's set on this whole big adventure to save the world. Uh, the game is fast-paced, beautiful. Uh, just the art design of the creatures in the world. It's got a really engaging story. My only real complaint is that while you can override and take control of these giant robotic beasties, you can't get them to follow you. And you can't really do anything to control them. So yes, you can recruit a pack of loyal machine gun hyena dogs. They won't follow you to go fight the giant grenade launching T-Rex. And yes, those both are real things in this game. All that said, there is a sequel in the works and I am super excited for it. And I'm not going to let it, you know, slip by me like I did this game. Yeah, I haven't actually played Horizon Zero Dawn, but I've heard nothing but good things. So it only got it got overshadowed by uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, and I have mixed opinions on that game. But I will say this game, in my opinion, is better than uh, Breath of the Wild. Ooh, see, that's going to cause more uproar, I think, than our Game of Thrones show versus book statement. Because <laughs> yeah, Breath well, of the Wild is, oh man, Nintendo hey, fanboys. Remember... Yeah, I remember Jim Sterling got like tons of hate mail just for giving it like a seven. Which is a good oh, I know. <laughs> like I said, I'm well prepared for it. Anyway, my suggestion of the week is a show that I actually initially wrote off after seeing the first episode, which is a Santa Clarita Diet. I can't believe. So, well, okay, the first season's kind of rough. I wouldn't even say that. Well, okay, here's the thing. Uh, two or so years ago, when the first season had just like come out. Stevie was living with me as a roommate and his girlfriend was up and we were like, hey, let's watch something. So watch the first episode. And I hate that first episode, mostly because that vomit scene is, I get what it's doing, but it, all right, actually for anyone who hasn't heard of this, because it's a Netflix original, the setup is very simple. Uh, you've got Drew Barrymore as this suburban wife. She's a, a realtor with her husband and they have a daughter, like a teenage daughter. And they're you know, just your regular suburban family. But then the mom dies and comes back as an undead. That's your setup. Suburban undead mom. She still 
you know, can talk and stuff like that. She's perfectly normal. She's got her, well, she has her personality still, except for two things that are different. One, she now craves human flesh. And two, she's basically completely driven by her id. So she has no impulse control. So she's getting to be the most like pure version of herself and her family who, you know, don't want her to go away essentially are trying to deal with her new being an undead thing. And so that first episode is gross. It's just disgusting. And it's meant to, it, it's does it on purpose, obviously to get you to feel it. But so I, I, after watching it, I had no interest in it, but then Ulrich on our Twitter posted something about uh, a doppelganger for one of our guests, the Chippa, like a guy who looks just like apparently being in the show. I, I wasn't sure what he meant. So I was like, huh, well, my lady hasn't seen the show, so maybe she'll be interested. So I put it on like last night and uh, I was like, all right, we'll watch a couple episodes. So I watched the second and third and the fourth episode. And I was like, by the time I got to the fourth episode, I was sold. The, the show is hilarious. Uh, Drew Barrymore and co, especially the husband, Joel, uh, Timothy Olf. I can't pronounce his last name. He's brilliant. The daughter is a badass. And the the set, it, it gets kind of a Dexter setup where it's like, all right, well, we got to kill people so you can eat. But we're good people, so we got to find bad people to kill and you know not get caught by the police. So it's like, it's like Dexter except suburban mom and zombies, and it's all really funny. And I'm in the middle of season two right now, and I'm loving it. Okay, the character we're referring to comes up season three. I'm not crazy. Everyone I've talked to says that looks like Chris. Yeah, my point was I just I didn't know what you meant. Like I didn't understand your tweets. I'm Neither like, I'm gonna did look he. It up. He got he got upset for me for about a split second. Then he realized what I was saying. Hmm. But no, uh, yeah, I love this show. I agree. The first season's a bit rough. Uh, it continues to get better. If you are fans of Better Off Ted, it's the same showrunner, similar comedy, and they murder a lot of Nazis. And as you all know, there's only one stance on Nazis. Here's here's what I say. Watch the first four episodes. Just four. If you get through the fourth episode and you aren't like really interested, just just drop it. Like, but that fourth episode especially is where it really hits its stride. Oh, and for funsies, uh, Nathan Fillion is in episode one. Horrible things happen to him. <laughs> so, you know, more Nathan Fillion is always a good thing. And uh, Stanley Tudyk's in uh, season three. Neat. Anyway, that was just my suggestion because I've been binging that recently. So. Good show. All right. Well, then, as always, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Most importantly, the share part. If you like this podcast, do us a favor. Share it with a friend. Share it with your family. Get us out there because, listen, the algorithm for YouTube, SoundCloud, all of them, they don't promote us. That is on us, and that is on you guys, our fans. And speaking of which, as he just said, we are currently on SoundCloud and YouTube. I don't know which one you're listening to us on, but if there's any other platform you'd like us to investigate, then let us know. Like, as soon as we have someone tell us, hey, check out this platform, we will dig into it. But if we don't have anyone tell us, then we don't really have much reason to explore beyond what we currently have. So let us know what you listen to. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother. Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.